My name is Tom Chick, and I'm not playing Star Wars Outer Rim. And this is Asan Lopez, and I'm not playing Pipeline. Oh, so, yeah, Pipeline, I just, I was at a friend's house over the weekend, and he had his shiny new copy of Pipeline up there, and I know he put it up there because he wanted us to ask, hey, can we play that? And uh, <laughs> no one did. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Uh... It's it's a kind of a tough sell unless you want a crunchy economic game about oil pipelines. Yeah, you, know. you, you look at the back of the box and you kind of get a sense of, uh, yeah, I'm, I may not be ready for that. I showed up for something a little lighter. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I only bring it up because it was one of the popular games at, at this Origins thing I went to, and I just did not have interest in sitting down and spending three hours playing it. Speaking of this Origins thing you went to, Hassan, what what is this? Tell me about it. <laughs> All right, so so I actually was on assignment last time. That's why I wasn't on the podcast. Right. Um, but no, I go to every year. I go to the Origins Game Fair, which is the second largest tabletop con- game convention in the United States, and it's held every June in Columbus, Ohio. And Gen Con is the first. Yeah, Gen Con's the biggest. Okay. And the history of these cons is actually kind of slightly i mean it's subtly interesting but origins started um in 1975 as a collaboration between i think a a war gaming club um just a group of guys who played lots of war games in baltimore and avalon hill which was based in baltimore Mm -hmm. and they started this this gaming convention which subsequently was taken over by gamma and in i think in 1996 or so it was shifted to columbus ohio and that's where it is every year at the big convention center there and it's a good location for it it's um you know in comparison to gen con which has i think over 60 70 thousand people um in indianapolis uh uh, origins has around 18,000, so it's substantially smaller and to be frank i think that's that makes it a better con. I, th- I think it's just, it, you're, it's less crowded, it's easier to jump into games, it's easier to see everything that you want to see. It's also, I think, a con that is well-suited to you know, so-called casual visitor who just kind of st- wants to just kind of go and maybe jump into a few games, see what's mm-hmm. new and hot, um, versus Gen Con, which is going to be a more intense experience. And you've been doing Origins how long, you said? Uh, since 2015. So yeah, the first year I went, I was helping demo and sell my, my first game clockwork wars and I enjoyed it so much that now I just go every year. It helps that my older brother lives in Ohio. So we make it kind of a, a dual Lopez affair where we get to hang out and just nerd out over games for, you know, a few days. Sure. Uh, now were you there to pitch something or were you, were you there just because you'd want to now go to origins every year? Um, it's, it's this year it was both. So okay. it, that's not always the case every year. But yeah, this year I got to do a little bit of everything, which was great. Um, I mean, just, before, before we talk about the games that, that you got to see and play, can you talk a little bit about what you pitched and what, what that was like? Like, is that sure. something you can go on the record with or is that secret? Yeah, sure. I mean, at least I can give the broad strokes of it. So mm-hmm. the way that Origins is set up is that there's three really large exhibit halls. There's a there's a large central exhibit hall where there's dozens of companies set up with their stalls to show off and demo and sell their newest stuff. Um, there's it's also the place like if you are if you are dying to drop three hundred dollars on some really fancy dice, this is your place. Um, <laughs> I, I literally saw somebody do that, and I just my jaw just dropped. Uh, was that somebody named Hassan Lopez? No, no, it okay. was not. It was not. Um, but but yeah, if you want to spend seven hundred dollars on a super fancy whammy dine dice tower, handcrafted <laughs> from teak wood or whatever the fuck, yeah, this is the place to go. So, um, and then there's two side gaming halls which are huge vast gaming halls with tons of tables and there's a lot of organized tournaments for things like Keyforge or um, uh, mage knight or whatever i mean you name it there's going to be a tournament for something there and demo areas and then a lot of open tables where people can sit down and play or gms can set up shop to you know host host like miniature games and things like that mm-hmm. um but from a designer standpoint, it's a it's a great con to promote your games, meet publishers, chat with other designers, 
get in playtesting and pitch whatever new designs you have. So Now, real quick, are, are independent designers showing up and setting up just at a random table? Are they buying booth space? Uh, do both of those happen? Yeah, there's there's flexibility. Buying booth space is, is very expensive. So if you are... If you are going the path of independent publishing, like you're making a game, you're making it yourself, you're selling it yourself, then you might you might consider doing something like that. But it's relatively rare. Um, but you can you can just sort of like set up shop on a table and try to get people to sit down and play test your design. Um, my older brother actually sat down and played this guy's game, which was a huge European conquest game that took three hours. And <laughs> I think my brother maybe regretted it after the first <laughs> half an hour. Um, now, but, is there a lot of that? A lot of people who just, hey, I made a game. I'm going to set up at a random table and hope to catch your eye. Um, there's not a lot of it, but it is there for sure. Okay. And, 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 and really... The, the big the big event which I didn't go to which is really good for for freelance designers is they have a, a publisher speed dating event I think it happens on Saturday night where you there's a there's a separate room set up for this and you set up your prototypes and publishers just go around from table to table and you basically have two minutes to pitch your idea to, <laughs> to each publisher yeah it's crazy it sounds um, intense yeah 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 and I didn't do that but um, Had you done yeah. that previously? No, I've never done a speed pitching thing, okay. although I can definitely see the value of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, what I did is I I sort of split my time this con in a, in a, in a satisfying way. I got, you know, a, a good chunk of it was just spent being, you know, a consumer and going around and seeing what was fun and cool and playing games. And then I spent a significant amount of my time at the Eagle Griffin booth showing off um, a pre-production copy of Maniacal. It's it's currently in production right now. We were hoping to have it for sale at Origins, but it wasn't. So I was basically showing people what it looks like and trying to get them to take pictures of it and write it down so that when it is on sale in a couple months, they'll remember it, right? Um, so that was fun, just chatting with people who maybe kickstarted the game or anyone who just caught in, you know glance of it and were curious. That was That was a fun thing to do. Um, and that was when I was right next to a big, vibrant copy of Escape Plan, which was just flying off the shelves. And we're, I think we're going to talk about that one later. Um, but the the other thing I was doing was pitching my new design, which, um, you know, I, I contacted a few publishers that I thought might be interested in it. I mean, without getting into too much detail, because I um, that is it's kind of sensitive. It's it's basically a. Um, a cult simulation game you you you're going to be a leader of a modern doomsday cult and i was pitching this idea to a few different publishers and um, i got the range of responses from um uh, you know incredibly enthusiastic to just stone-faced yawns so i (laughs) i I had the whole experience uh was it was that subject matter a tough sell do you think or some people just it, it just not interested in that that sort of thing no, I think I think universally people found the the theme cool, um, and that's one reason why that design sort of has sort of risen to the top of my prototypes right now because I think the zeitgeist right now is pro cult, right? Like there's a lot of attention to cults in like there's a lot of popular TV shows, movies about cults right now. Mm-hmm. I live in a part of the country, um, upstate New York, where the Nexium cult was really big news. And so that's actually Nexium is the is the cult that really got me thinking about a cult game and how that would be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, now it was it was more a mechanics like a lot of the publishers, like the reason why they're gonna say no to something is either A because there's a mechanic in there that they just immediately just don't jive with or B, they don't think it's a good fit for their company. So they might like it, but they're like, oh, this doesn't, this isn't the kind of thing that we publish. Right. 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 Um, now, when, when folks take a movie to like a film festival, uh, a lot of times they'll come away having sold the rights for their movie. Like they go to the film festival and they seal a deal. Is this something you were expecting to happen at Origins or is Origins just a first step in a longer process? You can seal the deal at Origins if they're, you know, is super enthusiastic about it, but that's usually not the way it goes. Um, usually, the best case scenario is that, and and I, I will say that this this did happen to me, which I was thrilled with, is that the one of the publishers asked to keep the prototype and was really excited uh-huh. by it, 
and said, yeah, I want to take this with me and show it to my my play testers. Um, they take the proto with you and then um, they'll contact you later if they want to to publish it or sign sure. a contract. Um, and that happens. So I've, I've signed the contract and it's it's going to happen at this point. Congratulations, Hassan. Yeah. I didn't know that. Very cool. Good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's and, great. and when will you be able to tell us who this is and more concrete information? Do you have a sense for that? Not for a while. I don't know. Okay. I mean, okay. I, I, I know that, I mean, this is just something that I had to learn as a designer, which is, you know, I, this is true in so many different arenas in life, but patience is your best friend, right? Um, and you, you often think like once you sign a contract with a company that it's going to just, it's going to start happening tomorrow. We're going to start working <laughs> on this. But that's the farthest thing from the truth. It's It's now in a queue and you know, best case scenario, we won't start actually developing this game till, you know, mid next year. Sure. And, and that would lead to a Kickstarter maybe in, you know, 2000, what, 21, something like that. So it's, it's just crazy how, how you have to, um, you know, kind of moderate your enthusiasm after something like this happens. Did this happen? Uh, and so how, how long are you there? I was there five days, I think. And did this like happen that. early or late in the process? It happened right away. So I was oh, oh wow, awesome. awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was like the, my first pitch. Um, it was, I think, the second day I was at the con. Yeah, I was feeling fucking great. And that then, is awesome. Yeah, all that anxiety yeah. about what's going to happen. <laughs> get that out of the way. Yeah, sweet. But then the subsequent pitches just got worse and worse. So. <laughs> well, you don't need those guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was. It was it was a it was a stressful experience for sure like every time you show something that you uh, are emotionally attached to that's a creative product of yours and somebody else is judging it that's incredibly stressful but sure. i i think with each time that i've done this or shown something like this to people i get better at dissociating myself from the the anger and defensiveness which is never which is never good for you right you just have to open yourself to criticism sure right right well, good. That's that's awesome news. I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll keep you guys updated as as stuff starts to happen, maybe. Great, and it let you uh, it freed you up to probably just enjoy Origins as a consumer for a little that's while right. too. Yeah. yeah, good. Yeah. All right. So uh, when you go, can you actually? I get a sense. I'm just imagining this as this big, huge, open, noisy, bustling arena where. I would never be able to concentrate or, or give my full attention to a game because people are constantly going to be doing something else or on their cell phones or people walking by asking, hey, what's that? Isn't this a miserable place to to learn and play a board game? <laughs> Some might agree with you, for sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, think, I think that um, for a lot of first-time con-goers, that's the experience, absolutely, is that you're kind of overwhelmed by the cacophony of sound and distractions and you sign up to learn terraforming Mars and it's a <laughs> bunch of strangers and the person teaching you the game knows 80% of the rules yep. and it's, it's that kind of experience. So right. if you, if you're used to playing games with your gaming group and being the person who teaches the games and knowing the rules backwards and forwards and doing a great job with everything, it's, it's going to be a shock to your system, but mm -hmm. The, the other side of it, of course, is that you can, um, I, I, the way that I like to play cons is to not actually sit down and play full plays of games too much. I mean, I do that a little bit, mm -hmm. but more to sort of jump into games, a whole bunch of them, as many as I can, um, enough to play like half an hour, maybe an hour's worth of a game. So I get a really good feel for it. And I, th I think that's useful research for me, both as a consumer and as a designer. Right. Well, let's talk about what you did get to see then. Uh, what were some things that uh, made an impression on you? All right. Yeah, I've got a few here, Tom, and you just jump in um, on any of these. So I'll start. I think I'll go from lighter to heavier. Okay. Um, and the first one's a really quick one because it was popular at the con and I did get to play it. And I can see the appeal of it, but it's not something I wanted to pick up. It's called Tukey. And Tukey is... This is a, the only thing that you listed that I'd never heard of before, and looking it up on Board Game Geek, I still have no idea what it is. Yeah, it's super It's super light. It's a family game for sure. I was on the lookout for a game I could potentially buy to bring home to the kids, and this was um, on the list because people were chatting about it. 
I would call it a cross between a spatial reasoning and dexterity game. And I'm sure to some people that sounds absolutely horrifying. <laughs> but you, um, you're basically, I mean, the theme is that there's, you're kind of manipulating, I think, what's supposed to be like ice or snow and stone um, that are shaped like Tetris pieces. So there's these, these cute little plastic pieces shaped like Tetris um, pieces and you're supposed to stack them to create a particular pattern that is shown on a card as quickly as possible so someone you know draws the card puts it up so all the players can see it and then you're immediately trying to stack your pieces as quickly as you can to match the pattern and some of them are pretty tricky right um, but um, it, it, it is a race game in the sense that if you if you finish quickly, you announce it, and then people keep stacking, pe people keep trying to match it, and the person who's slowest gets gets punished by having to take the card, and then once a, the, a person has collected their fifth card, they're eliminated from the game. So it's it's. I'll be honest with you, it, it was that mechanic that kind of soured me on it being a family game because you can oh, imagine right. that a lot of the times, not necessarily all the time, but a lot of times it might be the youngest person at the table who's going to be slowest. Right, right. And Let's frustrate him. <laughs> right. Yeah, rather than rewarding the person who's fastest, you punish the person who's slowest. That actually happened to me at my table because this was a game that I just my brain just jived with, and so I was just speeding through it and i was playing with this other this dad and his i think maybe eight-year-old son and i won the first round and the son gave me the card with the smile on his face he's like you won here you go and i was like well actually the <laughs> loser has to take the card <laughs> uh, so, the yeah, son I... tuki sounds absolutely horrific <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so Tukey, that was Tukey. And, Real quick, and, how big? What are the? What are the? Like, how big are the little blocks you're using to build stuff? Like, are they little square blocks, like the size that babies would play with, or like the size of beads, or how big of things are you manipulating here? That's tough. That's tough to explain. I would say they're very satisfying in their size. Okay. Um, they're the right size. I think the reason why this okay. game was popular is because it, it is a physically tactile emotionally satisfying game mm -hmm. right so moving the pieces around and and there is a dexterity element in the sense that if you've ever played a stacking game like even something like animals upon animals like that you you're trying to stack things in this very precarious fashion and because you're trying to do it quickly they'll often fall and then people laugh at you so right um, those games i should say can often be really good for kids who are better at that type of fine manual dexterity than their parents, right? So I'm, I, I don't want to make this statement that like, oh, kids are going to always be worse at this game than than adults. Right. Sure, right, right. All right, so uh, Tuki, a game that I'm in no danger of, of buying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I figured as much, yeah. Um, all right, next light game, and I know you have experience with this one, is Call to Adventure. Sure, so, okay. Uh -huh. um, this is now, what, what drew you to, to this? So Tuki was popular. People were talking about it. Why would you sit down to, to play uh, Call to Adventure? Um, a couple reasons. One is that my brother actually had recently purchased a copy, so I wanted to sit down with him and play it. Um, and and he was interested. He was excited to do that because he bought it. He's a, he's a big solo gamer like we are, and he originally bought it thinking it might be a good solitaire game. But uh, without wanting to spoil the conclusion, I don't think it is a particularly good solitaire game. Uh, and then the other reason was that Brotherwise Games, who published this, and they're they're previously really well known for Boss Monster. That was kind of their breakout right. hit several years ago. I, I like them as a company, actually. It's two brothers that run this company, and they don't put out too many games. But when they put out something, it usually makes a splash. And it's usually something that's fairly light but very thematic. And Call to Adventure has a... You know, some people might look at it and see kind of a generic fantasy veneer to it. But I think the artwork and the vibrancy of the cards is a draw. I think it's appealing on the table. I think it at the con it was drawing a lot of attention because it looked really pretty. And it was a game that you could sit down and learn very fast and play very quickly. And those games are do tend to get a lot of buzz at cons because of the structure of that, that type of experience. Mm -hmm. 
and so uh, sitting down to play this, what, what was your opinion of it? Well, the, 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 the broad strokes of the game is that it is a very light RPG experience, I guess, is, is how you'd put it, is that you, you choose a, a, a character, a protagonist that you're going to play at the start of the game, something like a farmer, and over the course of the game, you'll be strategically drafting different cards into your... Um, into your, I, I don't know what you'd it's call it. It's like a tableau. It. It's like your tableau, tableau of your character's career, basically. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. Um, and those cards might be additional traits, like adventurous, that are going to boost certain skills that you have. That might make you have higher constitution or higher dexterity. I can't remember all the traits. Um, or they might be challenges that you have to overcome. And through drafting these traits and challenges, you basically craft a life story that progresses over three acts. Um, and I, I think that's the primary sell of the game, is that it's going to appeal to people who, at the end of the game, like to sit back and look at their tableau and kind of tell a little story, like often even out loud to the other players about what, what their hero, what their protagonist did over the course of their life. And the game facilitates that absolutely with some, you know, highly thematic cards that that fit into a story that you can tell. Um, mechanically, it I think is where it falters. Un unless unless you're looking for something that's super light, I don't think it's going to be satisfying to people who are 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 looking for something with choice and um, strategy, because it's it's mostly a game about. Um, boosting certain, you know, uh, skills that you have, which we're going to tie into not rolling dice, but rather casting ruins, these little ruin tokens. I would and, characterize them as two-sided dice. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and trying to succeed at these various tasks, and then there's kind of a maybe overly convoluted point system attached to that, but as you collect cards, there's going to be points associated with them, and then at the end of the game, you add up your points and see who wins. Mm -hmm. And well, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, what I was going to ask you, what do you? I think the ruins are a selling point of the game. What do you think about the ruin system? Do you like it? Is it not satisfying to so, you? So well, one of the issues with dice is uh, as you introduce larger ranged dice, uh, you have less control. Like a D20 makes a dramatically different kind of game than a D4. Uh, and when you try to create a game around that range, there's a, there's a whole set of games called the Pathfinder Adventure Card Games, and how good your character at, is at something is based on that range of die. If your character sucks at something, he's only going to get a D4, but if he's really good, he'll get a D20, so he's got more options to solve something. Uh, there's a similar game in that system uh, called uh, Apocrypha, which boils everything down to a D6. You never roll anything but a D6, which is kind of limiting, and I think it kind of harms the design, the breadth of the design that the Pathfinder Adventure card game has. So I kind of find distilling it down to two-sided dice, basically flipping a series of coins, uh, I like the wiggle. I, I like how, how that's much more kind of deterministic and there's less wild randomness there. So right. I, I kind of like that, but you're right. Mechanically, it comes down to, okay, am I going to have a dexterity character or a constitution character? And if I have a dexterity character on the board, it's obvious what card I'm going to want to try to get. If I have a constitution character, okay, I'm obviously going to get that kind of card. So it's basically about hitting one statistic. It, it's, it almost comes down to just set collection, yep. um, yeah. which is, I don't think that's satisfying. Like set collection, when I think of sitting down and creating a character's history, and especially in a fantasy setting, because these cards are really evocative. Like you get turned by the dark side, or you save a village of people, or you you know slay a dragon. And, and it, but it's much more specific. These little cards, these specific character beats, like story beats. Looking at all that stuff is super evocative, and it looks great. But it all comes down to this set collection. Like oh okay, slaying the dragon. That's a strength card. I guess I'll have to take that. I can't take the marry the princess card because I don't have enough charisma. Uh, right. So uh, I, I love the rune system in theory, but when it's just kind of slaved to this rote set collection, uh, I feel like it's kind of squandered. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting design. It's one that I like, but not 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 a lot. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that they there's a there's a slight disconnect between 
this evocative theme and the artwork and the the narrative that they're trying to push and then this idea of how you actually score points and how kind of repetitive it feels and how not very strategic it feels yeah yeah uh and and even as a is a multiplayer game too there's just a real there's a lack of any sort of meaningful interaction with the other players beyond oh i wanted that card right. uh and that just you know we're each sitting here building our own tableau right. pretty much what everyone else is doing is irrelevant to what we're doing and i, I hate that about it i uh, seem to recall there there aren't there a set of cards that i forget, yes. I forget what they're called where you, there's like be a dick cards and so there and... are there are uh there yeah the, there are basically uh ally and and villain cards that you can stick onto other cards to make them more attractive or less attractive uh right. and they list this and i always find it odd when a game does this they consider it like expansions and they say you know maybe add these in after you've played the game five or six times but i feel like right off the bat this is adding a, a cool new mechanic that should be there in the first place to help realize to, to help add more interaction and sort of give you more control over what's out there and influencing what people can do. Because yeah. these ally cards make certain things, like you get an ally and it's super it, it's super helpful and it gives you an additional power. You put these little arch villains down and it makes other cards harder to get. Um, and their players are then interacting with the board in different ways. Uh, they're weighting different choices. I can see that you're going for specific, you know, maybe you've got a high strength, so I know you want that Slay the Dragon card, so I put a Necromancer on the dragon. And, uh, like, yeah, so they rec that's like an expansion, quote-unquote, that right. I feel should be part of the base game. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and as far as that whole idea, too, I, I love this idea of uh, sitting down with a base card, you know, I'm a farmer, I'm a squire, I'm a I'm a, an orphan rogue in a in a city, and then creating a career by adding cards that are story beats. I love this idea, yep. and the first time I saw it is a, a Richard Linnaeus design called uh, uh, Legends of the American Frontier. And this right. came out a few years ago, and it's a it's a western themed thing. And it's it looks super evocative. You start out as you know a farmer, or a gunslinger, or a sheriff, or whatever, and you go on this crazy wild career across America, which includes the West, it includes the East. You can marry a Southern belle. You can become a congressman. You can fight a grizzly bear. You can be <laughs> a, a crazy mountain man. You can live with the uh, Native Americans. Like all of this crazy cool stuff can happen, but unfortunately, there's no like the the gameplay mechanic is is just it's just really weird. I'm just doing this arbitrary thing. Like you're rolling dice and you're joining other players or maybe not to then choose. For... It just doesn't feel these cool things that happen. The way I earn them doesn't do them justice. Right. Um, yeah. But there is this great idea that at the end of the game, I've got a series of cards that charts my my character's uh, life. And it's, you know, if you want to get to that conclusion and see a cool spread of cards, of cards representing somebody's life uh it's interesting at the end but getting there should be i think way more compelling than it is so that's my feeling about call to adventure as well yeah i agree with that assessment i mean the 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 one thing that's keeping it on my radar is that they have some expansions planned for it. i think it's been successful enough that they're continuing to develop and think about it and that's very much in the brother wise games um sort of uh, corporate strategy good, good to hear and that. And I'm I'm curious because if it becomes more complex, maybe it might get better. This might be right. one of those games that, as you kind of latch systems onto it, it be, it might become more appealing to those of us that that are craving something a bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. And yet, the base game might be perfectly suitable for a really casual, light experience. Right, right. Uh, one thing that I would uh, uh, call out is sort of an example of this that I think kind of works for me uh, because there is more complexity there because they've got uh, a license that they're using that, that lends it kind of a pre-existing richness to, to its mythos. Uh, a company called Lone Shark that did the Pathfinder card game, they did Apocrypha, they released something that I think pretty much nobody knows about uh, based on the Numenera license, which is this big, crazy uh, fantasy science fiction uh, universe set way, way in the future where there's nine different dimensions and there's all these apocalypses piling up with past technology and magic. It's this kind of crazy fantasy slash sci-fi world. Um, and they 
used this license to create a similar game where you start out with a basic character and the character building in Numenera is you pick a, uh, a noun, a verb, and an adjective to describe who your character is, what he does, and I guess how he does it. Um, so they have this as the basis for your character, and then they've got a fairly robust gameplay system to accumulate the things your character does over his or her career. Uh, and Lone Shark has enough uh, background, I think, with making interesting card games with interaction and different choices and different kinds of systems that this game that they've made is called the Nine Worlds, or the Ninth World. Hmm. Uh, this game that they've made is my favorite example of what I want from what I originally saw in Legends of the American Frontier and what I was hoping Call to Adventure would do. Hmm. Uh, Ninth World has its share of, of clunky issues, but as far as this, hey, I'm going to create a base character and then have a crazy RPG career by accumulating these cards representing events and deeds, that would have to be currently my favorite example of that kind of game. Hmm, so, cool, cool. Yeah. So, all right, so uh, Call to Adventure, uh, you got to see that. And yeah, I'm not crazy about that. So right. what else did you see that, that you do? It was something a little heavier. All right, so the, we're going to kind of make a big step in heaviness, actually. So I played Blackout Hong Kong, which mm -hmm. is not a, a brand new release. It's actually came out in 2018, but it was new to me. And this is a game by Alexander Pfister, who is one of the really hot designers right now. He's well-known for Great Western Trail, Isle of Sky. He's had some really big hits the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Blackout Hong Kong has, well, let me just say this, do not be fooled by its intriguing theme. So you're going <laughs> to... You're going to look at this game, and it's like Hong Kong has been struck by a devastating blackout. Oh, my God, chaos reigns. How will you restore order to the city? And then someone starts explaining it to you. You're like, yeah, you're fucking pumped. And then you start learning the game, and it's like, how will you optimize your card play? You know, it's, it's, it is a soulless Euro through and through, and you're going to be playing cards and taking actions to try to squeeze out as many victory points as you can before the game timer runs out. And if that disheartens you like it did me, um, then then I'm, I'm, I'm telling you now to save you from that trauma. It's super weirdly abstract. Like I, I for, for something that should be so evocative and I, I it, it's a weird design and it's a weird presentation. Yeah. Uh, Given that, as you mentioned, like it should feel like Escape from New York or something cool like that, where where uh, a modern city has collapsed and you're having to navigate the chaos, that's awesome. But yeah, the weird like set collection stuff and this this contrived controlling nodes on this board, which is really just a series of colored nodes, um, it doesn't make a good first impression, uh, no. I think. But I will say, Hassan. I think it makes a slightly better third, fourth, and maybe fifth impression. Um, I mean, in, in that I do think that Andrew Fister knows what he's doing, uh, and I think there's ultimately something here that is kind of betrayed by its presentation. And, and let me give you an example. The, the board, which is a map of Hong Kong, and it looks like it's blacked out. There are occasional lights here and there, and I guess it's Hong Kong. I wouldn't know. Uh, it just looks like land masses, and, and there's some water there. But mainly what the board is in terms of gameplay is randomly colored nodes that are connected. It's just this weird pattern. And there's a kind of territory control element where you're supposed to be rescuing different neighborhoods by closing up, by getting all the corners of one of the shapes in this weird little lines and nodes pattern. Um, because it's supposed to be Hong Kong, I don't know why they didn't give the map more personality because you're trying to control neighborhoods right. i don't know why they couldn't name the neighborhood or show me a landmark that's in that neighborhood or right. i mean there there's so much evocative theme that could be presented here and i could learn a little bit about hong kong or at least have some fictional image of it and things that have places in hong kong but it's just literally a blackboard with colored nodes and I, I just, you know, controlling the four points of a square isn't anywhere near as interesting as, say, controlling the hospital district right. or the Hong Kong library or the city hall. Because he's got this resource model, which I think is pretty cool, which involves uh, 
uh, getting gasoline for your transport fleets, which help you in certain ways to get resources, to control the neighborhoods, uh, getting intel for these GPS tokens, which help you also scout and get things you want from the different neighborhoods. Uh, food and water are resources that you lose if you don't spend them in any given turn. Uh, so I, I, there are just so many cool potential ideas here that just get plopped out into an abstract black board. Right. Uh, and I feel like they're kind of abandoned that way because they're great hooks for your imagination that simply aren't provided. Right. Uh, yeah. And after you play the game a few times and sort of learn the system and all that abstraction becomes kind of second nature, then I think you can kind of create these hooks for yourself and understand what he's getting at. But it's, it's not super accessible up front. Uh, and I do like also this is uh, I like the the personnel management system, which again there's a lot of abstraction there, but you get different characters, and you have to basically the idea is you're sending them to get resources for you, and then some of them have special abilities, so you don't want to just waste them on scavenging food, uh, and then as you use them they get sort of locked into their job and you eventually recover them from the job. So there's this kind of personnel management. Oh, and the other thing is when you, uh, quote unquote, when you buy a character to add to your, your hand so you can send them, him or her, on missions, you have to do a kind of a quest for each character. Right. So you're buying a mission that becomes a character, which creates this idea of, oh, I provided food to these people, and then from these people, this engineer came out to help me. Um, but again, all of this is under a bunch of abstraction because the engineer is just someone who can let me grab whatever resource the red die rolled. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that just doesn't I, – I don't I, – so I really want to like this game. It's got a solitaire component, which I think it works just fine because another problem with it, there's not a lot of player interaction. Uh, you don't even really block each other. When, like you can be the first to control a, a, a neighborhood, and controlling a neighborhood unlocks these cool passive powers – that you can kind of just pick and choose among. So if you're the first one to, to close up a neighborhood and, and rescue it, uh, you get a special power. And that's the only real, I think, player competition is who's going to race to control a neighborhood. But there's so much area on the board right. that you don't really have to bump elbows with anyone to do that. Uh, yeah. So there's a solitaire game in it that I feel works pretty much just as well as the multiplayer game. And they even uh, Fister even created a kind of a campaign which mm -hmm. recommends, okay, play the game with these parameters, and then based on how you score, now play the next scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a way to, I guess, give you different setup conditions to, to play the game solitaire. Um, right. right. But yeah, I really wish that uh, it had done a better job of, of realizing its theme, because it's a cool theme, and there's some interesting mechanics there. Do, yeah. do you know any of Andrew Fister's other games very well? No, no. I, I, I mean, th this was, this was my first experience with his. I'm pretty sure. And my, you know, walking away from this, I'm still interested to try, for example, Great Western Trail, which, mm -hmm. just from, you know, looking from an outsider's view, it looks like it has better thematic integration with his intricate mechanics. I mean, right. you know, like, I mean, you said this, and I agree with you, which is that Blackout Hong Kong is. A, a great example of lots of interesting, intricate systems that connect together really well. And I think that's kind of a defining characteristic of good, complex Euros, right? Yeah. Is that there's there's a cool rondel mechanic and how the dice interact with the rondel is interesting and how the area control fits in. I really liked how you always had both short-term and long-term goals yeah. you could be pursuing, and you were kind of torn in all these different directions of like, oh, I really want to unlock this new engineer, but I also need to be building towards this this bigger goal, right? Um, and I, I, you know, and I liked all that, and I started to grok it, you know, after not too many turns of playing it, but. To me, it just uh, just all the enthusiasm to play this again is drained by this drab graphic design. I really, I think that this is one of those games where just someone painting it, yeah. you know, yep. with with just a better look at, like you said, maybe giving the neighborhoods some flavor um, and giving the cards a little bit more flavor. Like that would go so far to making this a more appealing game to bring out. Uh, one of the things that I, I only noticed today going through my copy of it, because I knew we were going to talk about it, uh, everybody has the same starting hand of 
characters. Uh, and, it, and again, the characters are ways pretty much to just claim resources. Some of them have a few special abilities. You start with a scout, a doctor, and a leader. And we all start with the same set of cards. Uh, one thing I didn't notice, and then each faction is identified in their factions. I say, instead of player colors, you just get a little icon based on a, a year of the Chinese calendar. There's a year of the horse, a year of the dragon, a year of the tiger, and there's uh, one other one I forget. So you've just got a little tiny icon in the corner of the card that that identifies, hey, this is the starting card for this player's set. They might as well be blue and red and yellow and, and green. Uh, one thing I never noticed, and I futzed around with this game for a while, is each faction's leader has a different picture. Mm. Uh, and they're all leader cards. They all do the exact same thing, but one of the factions is a cool tattooed, like, Yakuza chick. <laughs> yes, the other totally. one is a, is a military that. leader in a uniform with a megaphone. The <laughs> yeah. other is like a scientist in a hazmat suit play that stuff up that would have been great um like you know maybe heck give these characters names how right, cool right. like that just give my give me hooks for my imagination to pull me into the system you're creating the piece that like the bits and pieces are there to do that but the work wasn't done to do that and it's really right. frustrating yeah right. so no, I mean, um, go ahead without, without wanting to belabor the the point I, it's it's a good example of the distinction between European game design yeah. tra tradition and Ameritrash game yeah. design tradition. Like in, in America game design, you would name those and they'd probably have really stupid fucking names, but you'd <laughs> name them, right? And But in the European tradition, I think the attitude is doesn't really matter. In fact, we don't want to differentiate them. We want every player to start at the same, you know? Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, game design has obviously evolved in such a way that hybrid designs are... Now I almost like the 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 norm rather than the exception in in game design, and the two traditions are harder and harder to dissociate from one another. Everything's kind of a an amalgamation of the best qualities almost. Well, yeah, yeah, I feel it's a spectrum, and and any good game is going to fall somewhere in the middle of that spectrum in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the, another game we're going to talk about, uh, a friend of mine who I, I played I did uh, played games with this weekend. Uh, when I left the house, he loaned me two of his games he wanted me to look at, and one of them was another Andrew Fister design, an early one, uh, called um, Mombasa. Mm. Uh, and Mombasa looks awesome because it's got all those hooks. It's basically about, and this is like weirdly questionable taste, uh, it's basically about exploiting the continent of Africa for uh, diamonds and oil, and it is these colonial powers exploiting Africa from four different directions. Uh, Mombasa, to e Mombasa, Egypt, uh, Johannesburg, and I forget what's on the West Coast at that time. But you're moving in and taking control of Africa and creating these... Uh, you're not even running the companies. You're buying interest in the different companies. Huh. Uh, and everything seemed really vividly themed. And, uh, you know, it's it's a much earlier design of his. Uh, but, yeah, why couldn't he have done that with Hong Kong Blackout? So... <laughs> All right, what else did you say? Well, let's talk about Escape Plan next, because I, I, I don't have a ton to say about it, except that I, it, um, I mean, one similarity between, so Escape Plan is a design by Vital Lacerda. It's published by Eagle Griffin. And the reason why uh, it was so prominent in my mind at Origins is because it was definitely one of the, I think, 10 hottest games at the con. Um, I was I was pitching and, and chatting about Maniacal to people right next to a copy of Escape Plan that was getting, you know, a hundred <laughs> times more attention than my game was. Um, but that's that's reasonable because Vital's kind of a genius and a very well-respected designer. He's done things like Lisboa and The Gallerist oh, yeah. and all of his designs are definitely on the heavy end of, of, of Euro games. And they all, I would say that their defining characteristic is that they are characterized by very intricate um, systems that the, the more that you play with them and experience them, the more satisfying the games become. So it, it, in that sense, it, it kind of reminds me of what you were saying about Blackout Hong Kong mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of intricacies in it and the first time you play you're going to kind of be confused by what's going on it's not entirely going to flow smoothly for you you might walk away thinking that there's one too many things going on in the game but the but from from what I know of Vital's designs the more you play them the more you love them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Escape Plan I think is being touted as his 
as one of his lighter games. Um, but I can I can tell you just from <laughs> watching people talk about it and watching a few demos of it that don't think of it as as light in right. any in any sense of the word. Definitely have to think of it relative to his other games because it's yeah. there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... this is the other one, by the way, that my friend loaned me uh, with Mombasa. Uh, because he, he wants me to play it, and, and he wants me to sort of teach everyone in the group, and he wants us to try it. So I haven't actually played it, but I've taken it out, and I've looked at it, and I've read over the rules. Uh, and I don't – I'm not – I mean I think it's a, it's a great idea. So, so the idea being that all the players are criminals who have pulled off a really big heist. Right. And the, they, it turns out the cops are on to them, so they have three days to accumulate the money from their heist, which they've seeded around the city in different businesses and lockboxes. They've got to run around the city, evade the cops, get as much money as they can, and then leave the city before all the avenues of exit are sealed off. And whoever Sounds gets great. out of the city – it does sound awesome – and whoever gets out of the city with the most money wins. So there's all that risk-reward. Like, oh, do I, do I get a little bit more money because I know Hassan is doing pretty well. I don't know how well, but he just stopped off at the gym, and I think he got a lot of money there. So maybe I should go to the casino before I go to the exit. So yeah, it sounds awesome. So what could go wrong? <laughs> Well, we'll see, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, you just got to prep people, I think, with Vital's games that like, look, guys, we're going to, this rules explanation is going to take 30 minutes or so, you know, and be, you're wearing it for the haul here, but it's it's going to be fun. And and the advantage of the escape plan and, and pretty much all of his games have over something like Back at Hong Kong is that it looks gorgeous. Yes. And that's because of the artist, Ian O'Toole, who he Vital always works with and his graphic design and his artistry are absolutely phenomenal. So while you're explaining the rules to people, they can play around with all the cool toys in the game and look at all the great artwork and it, it will smooth it over. It's clearly going for a kind of an action movie Grand Theft Auto auto video game vibe to yeah. all the, the stuff in there and it really shows in all the components and the board and the little cards that you get. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want – it's got a weird idea that the players are building the board as they go, which is kind of weird for a, a game set in a city. Like they, I, that would be great for a game where you're exploring a continent, for instance, but it's right. kind of odd that the, 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 the city is just a great big blank spot and you have no idea what's where, uh, and then each turn you add a few more tiles – uh, and I don't know that that was just one of the weird things that struck me reading it is, well, OK, I'm building this city and it's going to determine how easily I can traverse between certain areas. It just seems odd that all of that is up for grabs early in the game, that you're in a city and have no idea where anything is. Right. Uh, no, that's an interesting observation. And I, I wonder if it was because if laying out the map entirely at the beginning made it almost too easy for the players to plan their escape route um, right. that, yeah. that there needed to be some tension in oh where 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 am i going to leave the city and how are the cops going to be blockading things i yeah. i don't know yeah is there a is there a solitaire uh option with this game could you learn it that way that is an excellent question and i think oh yeah yes there is so not really uh there is a, a bot that you can have controlling the other player gotcha. uh, and i think with two players the the game even says okay if you're going to play two players that's fine but you need to have this bot and the bot is the character from a game he made called kanban mm. who uh it's an automotive factory game and there's a, a super hard-ass manager chick running the automotive plant, and you have to, like, I think, appease her and make get, get points with her and, and do everything she says. She's kind of a, a, a domineering boss figure in Kanban, and <laughs> she's the boss. In, she's the, the AI uh, third character in Escape Plan. Uh, I think her name Hilarious. is Sarah. Yeah. That's great. So, so if you play Solitaire, you have to play with you with her and then with a third bot or a second mm. bot so mm. there is solitaire but it's really just coming up with ways to add an additional player uh, right. rather than you fighting a specific system it's just trying to create a foe and it looks like the sort of they flip over cards and they do random things so right. i'm not convinced it's a very good solitaire game because it's mainly you know it's mainly a player race you're racing the other players uh, as you each go to the different locations to get your money it becomes riskier to do that uh, 
so yeah, I'm not convinced it's a good solitaire game. Um, yeah. Well, I hope you guys get it to the table, and I'm, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. So. Do you? I, I will say. Do you? Do you? Uh, have you played things like the Gallerist and uh, other of his games, or Kanban, or any of those? No, and you know, I've, uh, Vital's games I always look at from afar with you know envy, but they're not really they're not really my style of game. I, I think they're just they are just a bit too heavy and with too much rules overhead, and a few too many intricate rules exceptions that you're likely to miss the first time you play. Like that that style of game, I just don't have as much patience for as I used to. They're definitely games that you play once to learn it. You yeah. play a second time to do it wrong and lose, right. and then you play it a third time to understand what you're doing, and then a fourth time before you can really finesse how you're playing and, and get the strategy. Like it, it, they're definitely games you have to be in it for the long haul. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think that's why he has such a passionate fan base, is that there are people who will buy every game he makes and just play them over and over again, which I really respect, right? There's just not enough of that right now in our gaming climate. Yeah, the uh, the the only one of his that I actually know uh, is uh, CO2, right. which uh, I was fascinated by because it's a cooperative design. There's an option right. to play it competitively, but right. uh, and also the subject matter. I love this idea that you're running power companies and that if you continue to rely on fossil fuels, the world is doomed. So you've got to, at expense to yourself, sub in you know research and substitute uh, clean power and forestation initiatives and recycling plants uh and we all have to do that or everything collapses and none of us wins Uh, but as we do it you know it it it, it also does a good job of creating a sort of an economic engine builder with a research scientific uh track racing game where you're trying to work your way up the different tracks for hydropower or wind power or solar power um and that's also because it's cooperative uh, a solid solitaire game you know, the, right. the system you're fighting is the growing carbon emissions around the planet. Uh, and you can play multiple sides. You can play it solo. Uh, so I really like, even though I've actually never played with anyone else, uh, I really like what I've seen of CO2. Yeah, yeah so. that's great. All right, what else did you see? All right, this might be my last one. So uh-huh. the last one, and it was kind of the 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 climactic event of Origins for me, was that I got to play Dune, which is... A grail game for, I guess, a lot of gamers. Um, Dune was originally published in 79 by Avalon Hill, and it's based on the Dune sci-fi universe. And the the reason why it's garnering attention right now is because Gale Force 9 um, successfully acquired the rights to Dune and is basically is coming out with a reprint, which fans have been clamoring for for years and years and years. And Gale Force 9 didn't have a final uh, copy of, of Dune at the con, but they had a, I would call it an advanced prototype version of it. It had some updated graphics and, and art on the components, and they were running demos of it consistently throughout the entire con, and I think they were, I think they were fairly well attended. Now, uh, Dune, I, I don't know if you know this, it's just a, uh, a reskinning of Fantasy Flight's Imperium Rex. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware of that, Hassan. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, after playing this, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but after playing this Dune, I'm, I am actually kind of curious to play Rex to see if it addresses what I perceive as some of the weaknesses of, of, of Dune. But ah, we, so it, then are they just reprinting it, or are they doing any uh, change in the design at all? My sense from playing this, and it's it's not it's not obviously nothing's final at this point, I don't think. But my sense from chatting with the guy who, who taught us the game is that it is largely a straight reprint. Um, okay. The some of the publicity they've they've put out there is that the the original designers of Dune are involved in the process, and they are they are involved in tweaking the rules um, a little bit. But as far as I could tell, and I, I played I played a game, a full game of this um, with five other players. It plays up to six, and people claim that it's really best with six. And so I played a six-player game. My brother was sitting right next to me. I was um, the emperor. He was House Atreides. And um, 
the the sense that I got from two of the people at the table who had played the original version is that it felt like it was the same game, like mm-hmm. not much had changed at all. Yeah. What are the weaknesses that you mentioned that you feel are part of the uh, Oh, boy. Um, well, it, it's this is a game that I think would require replete, repeated plays, but I, th- I think that it f- it really felt like a game from 1979. It, mm-hmm. it just felt like an older, janky design. Um, I mean, one of the things that bothered me about it is that an appealing feature of the Dune game, I think one of the selling points is that it's highly asymmetric, right? So you play as one of these defining six factions from the Dune universe. Each one's going to play differently, potentially substantially differently from everybody else. Some of them even have different win conditions. Like, for example, if you play the Bene Gesserit, you can win the game in this very interesting way by predicting at the start of the game who you think is going to win like who's going to hit the victory condition and on what turn and if you're right then you actually win the game which they don't right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is really cool right but it's also like that's that's obviously pretty hard to do but the game has mechanics that can facilitate that win condition like the Bene Gesserit obviously can then try to play in a way and negotiate with the other players in such a way as to make it so that that player does win when they want them to win, which is really cool and thematic and interesting mechanically, right? Mm-hmm. But the the downside of this, as you might expect, is that um, there's a lot of rules overhead at the beginning of the game. Like, you, it took us a, a while to learn the game. This was compounded by the fact that the guy who taught us the game was a combination between eccentrically enthusiastic and also incomprehensible so it was <laughs> it was not the best person to learn the game from um but he loved the game he made that clear to us numerous times um, <laughs> but uh it, it it it's just there's a lot to learn and and think about before you can even start doing anything and that's fine but then once you start playing i i got the feeling that there actually isn't a lot to it like you don't actually have a lot of options in the game um, beyond heavy 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 social negotiation right Right. and I, i think that's the thing that was really missing for us is because when you play a game at a con like this that's just not gonna right. happen right and I, th- I think i've expressed to you before in in previous podcasts that social ne- games like this that are heavy on social negotiation i i tend to have issues with like i don't jive with them very well and this is a game that clearly wants you to be wheeling and dealing with the other players and doing that doing so outside of the the rule set in whatever way that you you want to to try to to try to enhance your position in the game right mm-hmm. um and so that's where the, i think the the additional complexity comes from but in terms of actual mechanics it's really placing some units on the board and yep moving them around a little bit and getting into very straightforward really some battles and and yet there's a lot of phases and there's a lot of you know things that happen in those phases and there's a a storm that moves around the map and i mean just as an example of what i would call a janky element there every round begins with a an auction for treachery cards um, I think equal to the number of players in the game. Now, these treachery cards are really important. You're going to be using them in battles, and if you don't have treachery cards, you're in trouble. Um, but you, you're, you're bidding on treachery cards that you don't get to look at. So you're, you're, it's, a, it's a total blind bid. Like You're just like, I guess I bid three on that. And, the, and then it passes the next player. He's like, well, I guess I pass. Like you have no fucking clue what it is, except that House Atreides does get to know what it is. That's their uh. special power: is that they get to look at the cards, and and so you can sometimes read their reaction to get a sense of whether a card is valuable or not. But I, to me, it just it felt really slow that every round started with this auction. It felt really bizarre that we we're bidding on stuff that we had no idea what it was. And I, I was talking um, with my brother afterwards, and we both agreed that. That's an example of something that may very well have been improved through maybe a draft, right? Like it, with a revision of this game, maybe saying like, hey, you know what? Instead of doing a hidden auction, let's try a draft. And we're going to give Atreides still some kind of advantage in the draft. But um, it just felt really weird and bizarre to me. 
Well, now that you're, you're talking that way, I, I'm thinking you're definitely onto something with wanting to see what Fantasy Flight did with Imperium Rex. Because right. previously, I thought, oh, Imperium, that's going to be a shallow, <laughs> totally. pale imitation of Dune. I have no desire to see that. But you're right. I mean, they, they Fantasy Flight, they know what they're doing. I'd be super curious to see how they've hammered on the design to presumably make it smoother. And, right. Right, right, right. Uh, well, I as someone who I, I just adore asymmetry in games. It's one of my favorite things. And you're right. The problem with this is it, it reminds me of uh, Vast or Root uh, right. in that you have to teach someone, however many players there are, you have to teach them that many different games uh, because each side is so dramatically different uh, that each side – it plays like its own game in a way, so that adds a lot there. And furthermore, each player has to learn not just one game, because you're not really playing if you only know how your side works. Each player has to know each faction and roughly what they can do. So the more players you get, that increases exponentially. The more information you have to stuff into everyone's head. Right. Um, and and here's my other issue with Dune, and I'd be curious if that was the case. If this is the case when you guys played, it takes too long. Like, isn't it a long game? Well, I, I would I would actually say that that the game length is highly variable. Um, okay. So, so our game actually ended really abruptly, like within an hour. So we spent, oh. you know, we spent half an hour learning the game, and then it was over in another, I think, half an hour. So maybe forty minutes. Is this because of the variable win conditions? Like some players can sort of shut the game down quickly. <laughs> No, I think it, I think it was probably almost certainly uh, uh, an aspect of the fact that we were novices and didn't know what the hell we were doing, and the 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 Fremen, the Freeman, they were able to to sort of not sneak a victory in, but they were able to get control of three strongholds um, somewhat suddenly on a particular turn. Now I've I've heard this criticism of the game in other circles, which is that it's a game that can last half an hour or it can last four hours five hours right so that that's interesting like that's that that's rare in board games to have such right. a variance in game length and it might be a cool feature for your play group or it might be concerning you know right. I, it was it was i think you you obviously have to keep a very close eye on what other players are doing and and if someone's at all close to to victory you have to stomp on them right it's one of those games and that doesn't bother me like i don't mind that in 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 area control games at all like i think you that's just part of a war game is you have to keep track of where everybody is and their victory conditions and and if that means ganging up on who's about to win then so be it right um but yeah i think i i could see this game playing out overly long i think one revision that the that the gm told us about it is that i think it used to be 14 turns max and now it's 10 turns max so okay. i think they have reduced the maximum length right. in some way yeah do you know are they doing anything in terms of artwork or assets or to tie it into because there's a director named denis villeneuve who's directing a dune movie i think it's in two parts or whatever uh yeah. are they doing anything to tie it specifically into that movie I don't believe so, okay. even though that I think that would be really cool. I think they obviously are trying to time this so that it will right you know get a boost from the the movies coming out. But from what I saw, I think what they've done is they they somehow acquired the rights to a graphical redesign that has long been freely available on board game geek. I, f I forget the name of this graphic designer, but he basically posted a uh, you know, an updated component graphical overhaul of everything that you can download and you can make your own print and play of the game. Right. And and, it's lovely. That's great. It's beautiful. That he, yeah, it's yeah. great that he got this picked up. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So they, they basically bought that and I think that's what they're using for everything. Right. right. Uh, and, and so you said this was a, a fairly rough advanced prototype. Do they have a sense for when this is something they're putting on the market? Is that yeah, this they, year? Yeah, they didn't say. So okay. my, my, my guess is... That I mean, when's the movie coming out, Tom? Do you know when it's? I do not know. No, I'm afraid I don't. I'm guessing. Tw I, I will guess Christmas 2020. I'm just making that up, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Yeah. No. It. It. I mean, they, they had a full instruction manual there, and the components were prototypey but advanced. I don't know. I could see this. I could see this potentially being ready by um, by Essen later this year, maybe. Right. Okay. So right. I don't right. know. 
All right. So in the meantime, we do have uh, Imperium Rex to play, though. So that's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. This has been our uh, Origins episode. Uh, Hassan, congratulations on how well that went for you. That's awesome news. Hey, thank you. And uh, we will be back in two weeks. Mike will. Mike is on assignment this week, so all three of us will be around in two weeks to talk about what we've been playing then, and we'll talk to everyone then. Cheers.